Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19. All new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Jury got the case this afternoon. Harvey Weinstein faces two rape counts and five other sexual assault charges. Weinstein has pleaded not guilty and denies engaging in any non-consensual sex. Eyewitness News reporter Rob Hayes has more. After nearly a month and a half of testimony, jurors in the Harvey Weinstein sex crimes trial are finally getting their chance to weigh in. Jury deliberations began this afternoon when the prosecution wrapped up its rebuttal. Prosecutors have painted the disgraced Hollywood mogul as a predator preying on ambitious women, luring them to hotels with business propositions, then attacking them. Today, the prosecution lighting into Weinstein's defense saying his attorneys claimed they had the evidence to prove Weinstein was innocent, but that they failed to deliver it, telling jurors what you were promised by the defense yet again not borne out. Over the course of the trial, eight women took the stand testifying against Weinstein. Four were the women who filed rape or sexual assault charges. The other four described as witnesses. As in his New York rape and sexual assault trial, the 70-year-old Weinstein declined to take the stand in his own defense. His attorneys say he did nothing wrong, that the sex was consensual and transactional, and that there was no evidence backing up the women's claims. Weinstein's fate now in the hands of the 12 jurors. The prosecution ending its rebuttal by telling the jury, follow the law and find justice for these victims. Weinstein is already serving a 23-year prison sentence after being convicted of rape in New York. But that case is under appeal, which means this trial could determine whether or not Weinstein remains in prison. Jury deliberations are slated to resume on Monday. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. Now, I've decided to drop an extra special episode about the Los Angeles Harvey Weinstein trial whilst the jury are still out deliberating. I think it's important to unpack this trial, particularly as there has not been much focus on it in the media. Now, in case you're wondering, I'm still dropping part two of my powerful and important conversation with Diana Parks and Hetty Nanton about Joanna Simpson's case, and that would drop in my regular feed. So definitely tune into that and let me know what you think. Also, if you can take two minutes to leave me a five-star review wherever you listen to Crime Analyst, that will be an amazing Christmas present, and it will be hugely appreciated. It really helps others find me, and of course it helps with the ratings too. So if you appreciate what I do, my work and my expertise, Just take two minutes to let me feel the love from you. Okay, in this special episode, I'm joined by Louise Godbold, a survivor of Harvey Weinstein and trauma specialist. Louise shared what Harvey Weinstein did to her in October 2017. As a young commercial producer looking for an internship at Miramax, Weinstein said he would give Louise a tour of the offices in Tribeca in 1991. He cornered her in the conference room and forced her hand on his crotch. Now, he would later apologise and invite her to a meeting in a Beverly Hills hotel. Mid-meeting, he changed out of his clothes and put on a bathrobe and told her to give him a massage. 
Wrong-footed and knowing how powerful he was, Louise gave him an awkward shoulder rub. He threw back the covers and she saw he was sexually aroused. Louise panicked. She told him she had to go and shot out of there as fast as she could. She didn't report what happened, thinking that it was an isolated event by a man who had temporarily lost his mind. However, fast forward the clock, and after the New York Times investigation was published, an investigation that you can watch in the She Said movie, Weinstein threatened to sue the journalists and the women who spoke out. Louise knew that she had to speak up. So in this episode, you're going to hear an authentic conversation and analysis of the Los Angeles trial, including a breakdown of the strategy and tactics used by Weinstein and his defence team to discredit and unseat the victims. Now, for you lovely listeners who followed my work for a while, you'll know that every day I broke down the New York trial in My Two Cents, which you can find on my Laura Richards website. And unsurprisingly, the tactics used by the defence in both trials are very similar. The link to that is in the show notes. In this episode, we talk graphically about sexual abuse, and so listener discretion is advised. Okay, with that having been said, let's jump into part one of this important conversation with Louise Godbold. Today, I'm joined by a very special guest. I'm Louise Godbold. And I have the dubious honor of being a Weinstein survivor. And probably if you Google me, that's probably what you'll turn up, which is a little distressing because I've spent the last 10 years as executive director of Echo Training, which is a nonprofit that seeks to educate professionals and trauma survivors about trauma. And I have been a trauma expert for maybe even longer than that. Despite that, I'm mostly asked to give interviews about my experiences with Harvey Weinstein. So I'm very glad to be speaking with you today because I know that we're going to look more broadly, not just at my personal experience, but just looking at some of the broader implications of what this trial is bringing up, as well as looking at trauma and how that all fits in. Well, thank you very much. And I'm really happy to be talking with you. And yes, we're in the sixth day of jury deliberation of the LA Weinstein trial. And we interact at times together on Twitter and I do follow your social media. And I think we both recognise that there's not that much media focus on this second trial. What are your thoughts about that and what's going on? Well, it's very interesting because I was blindsided by the amount of media coverage in 2017 when I first came forward and around the New York trial. But I suppose for most people, it's all over by the shouting. I mean, Harvey was convicted in New York and is expected to spend perhaps the rest of his life in jail. So I think that people take a very casual approach to this trial in LA, like it's the icing on the cake. But the truth of the matter is that Harvey won his appeal, well not his appeal, but his right to appeal in the New York trial. And if he gets off on that and he gets off on this, he'll be a free man, which is a very frightening prospect. And the London trial has yet to materialize. So who knows what's going to happen with that. So it is important what's happening in the LA trial. But More than that, it's important for those women who are testifying because 
if you can imagine, I mean, supposing you or your sister or your mother had been abused by someone who's a serial rapist and he gets convicted in another country or state. Of course, it's great to have him behind bars, but it doesn't give you your day in court. It doesn't give you the closure in your own story. So for the four women who were testifying and those who are also testifying as prior bad acts witnesses, this trial is very important. And I just wish that we all got our day in court. But because of this ridiculous statute of limitations, that's not going to happen. Yes, it's interesting, the statute of limitations. I've been talking about that a lot with lots of people. And I still feel with sexual abuse, with domestic violence, there just shouldn't be a statute of limitations because we know that people come forward later on in their lives. It's not normal to early disclose when there's sexual abuse. It actually is normally when you feel safe and when you're maybe in a relationship or you have a baby that then you start to recognize the things that have happened to you and then you may articulate it. So we know in New York there's a look back law which only lasts for it's a one year period but it's retroactive and that's great and I wish that was happening all across the US and the world where people can come forward. But I think the other point that you make about being able to have your voice and have your day is also important. And the fact that we know with Bill Cosby that he is now out of prison due to a technical loophole. And I'm sure that that has emboldened Weinstein. We know that when people have wealth, when they have means, when they have money, they can afford the best lawyers. So yes, there is that issue with the New York case. And of course, the Los Angeles case is just as important for all the reasons that you say, for women having their voice, their say. And it really is alarming to me, Lou, just how the media characterise victims, in particular of sexual violence. We've talked about this a little bit on Twitter, of why the media use the term accuser. And it's really quite offensive. Do you want to say a little bit about what you wrote and why you wrote it? And we can get into that discussion. Yes. Um, but to your point about the look back, it only goes back to 2009. So for me, for example, that doesn't help because my assault happened in 1991. I'm an old lady. And also it's only for civil trials. It's not for criminal trials. So I applaud it. It goes some way to being able to resolve this, but it's certainly not comprehensive. Looking also at the Cosby trial, yes, it is going to give Harvey reason to believe that he might yet succeed in overthrowing his conviction because the two reasons they brought up in the Cosby trial was one, this pre-existing arrangement, which is how we got off. But the other thing was the prior bad acts. And you'll notice in this trial in LA, the judge has been very, very careful around using prior bad acts witnesses. And it's probably because she doesn't want to grounds for an appeal. But I was on the list for prior bad acts witnesses. Only I was excluded because she excluded everyone from before the year 2000. But I'm remembering your question. Don't worry, I'll get to it. As far as the, how victims are characterized and called accusers. And the thing that I hate about that is it always brings up this image of women with wild hair and bony fingers and standing around and accusing a kind of hysterical 
the image of the the Haridans going after these poor men. But uh, if you think about, if you had your handbag snatched, how would we talk about that? We wouldn't say, oh, that's the handbag uh, snatcher accuser. We always, for every other crime, talk about crime victims. We don't talk about crime accusers. And as you pointed out on Twitter, it's not the term that the police use, not the term that the courts use. So it's kind of a nod to these male perpetrators. And I know that the media outlets, of course, have to be careful not to get sued. So they always put, you know, alleged victim, et cetera. It's such a double standards, as well as, you know, look at the way that we've been characterized by worksman, Harvey's defense lawyer, what he called Jen Siebel Newsom, a bimbo. Would you call a male victim of sexual assault a bimbo? Or would you try and say that this person was an attention seeker? That's the other epithet that's thrown around. I think also if you look in social media, and I try not to look at some of the horrible comments, but there definitely uh, for people of color and for women, there is a jump to judgment. Like, well, you know, how how is it? How can we turn this around to somehow make it their fault? And I uh, was talking to someone who had no idea I was a Weinstein survivor. And he was saying, as somebody who'd been in a position of power, he said, I, no, I get it. You know, women just throw themselves at you. <laughs> I couldn't believe it after all this time that he really would believe that Harvey just opened the hotel room door and these women were falling into his arms. That, that That's the impression that he still had about Harvey's predation after all of the accounts where he physically restrained women, pinned them down, it just awful, horrific abuse. But it's so hard to change the norms around sexual assault. And it's so hard to change the norms around the expectation of women for safety and for dignity when they're going for a work meeting. And it's definitely, I'm not, you know, a great person to uh, rail against the patriarchy and whatever, but it does seem that definitely for female victims, there, there are completely different standards. I want to tell you about my sponsor, Factor. Factor makes healthy eating easy, and health and fitness starts with good food. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. So what are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Fuel up fast with Factors, restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. I've had the chicken parmesan and the turkey chili and zucchini, and they're delicious and I highly recommend them. Factor is flexible for your schedule. You can get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. Now they've done the maths and Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash crimeanalyst50 and use code crimeanalyst50 to get 50% off. That's code crimeanalyst50 at factormeals, F-A-C-T-O-R, 
factormills.com slash crimeanalyst50 to get 50% off. Yes, and I'm just going to first start off just with the New York enacting the Adult Survivors Act, because actually the Cosby survivors, five of them, have brought suits. And those suits are, are civil suits, as you say, and they do go back further than 2009. So that specific Adult Survivors Act, which suspends the statute of limitation for one year, does allow historical cases to be heard. So those five cases, I think it's going to be very interesting to hear what happens particularly as Judy Huff won her case in Santa Monica. So I I think that is a good thing to happen. Um, Civil suits are important. I've always worked on the criminal justice side, but I do think that people having the ability to bring suits, uh, civil suits, if the criminal justice side fails you, I think that that is important. But to the term accusers, certainly in my 27-year working in with victims and 10 of those years working at New Scotland Yard, we never once referred to any victim of a sexual crime as an accuser. And police still don't refer to victims as accusers. So I think it really is interesting that Michael Jackson legacy, Sunshine Sachs, the PR crisis team have done, they did such a good job of switching words. And the minute you hear accuser, you hear a question about credibility an accusation. The word allegation is quite different. And that's the word that I use when someone makes an allegation. And I think it is something that we should be challenging and not just accepting, well, that's what the editors use and that's in the media and that's in the zeitgeist, so we should all use it. It's the same as, and I'm sure you've seen this many times, when people talk about Harvey Weinstein, they call him the former media mogul or movie mogul, the former or the disgraced producer It makes me really angry when I see that. It has no bearing on him now. It's actually very important to say convicted sexual offender and to call him what he is. And we've seen that with R. Kelly, with all different male perpetrators whose job title comes first. So that's something that we should all look out for and challenge. And I think that Well, it's going to be very interesting given what was said at at this LA trial. And I agree with you, Lou. You know, this whole tired and worn out narrative of Harvey Weinstein's legal team calling the women bimbo, saying that they're liars, that they're great actors, that they're dramatised performances, that it's about them regretting having sex with him and that the sex was transactional, that they're attention seekers, they're fortune and fame seekers, and that it's trendy to say you've been raped. I I just literally cannot believe that that's what we're hearing in a court in 2022. It just beggars belief. It's so insulting and it's so offensive. And we don't hear those things being said about male victims. It really is a double standard. There's nothing trendy or there's nothing to be gained about reporting rape or sexual violence or domestic violence. Actually, there's a lot to lose. And that tells me about credibility and authenticity when you have someone like Jennifer Siebel Newsom coming forward to share what happened to her, to allow people to see that it happens to lots of women. It's not just about one or two and those who are trying to make it into the business. It happens to successful, and it happened to successful women as well. So that tired narrative, we really should not be accepting that in 
trials anymore? Well, the, the thing that surprises me is that the defence lawyers can get away with saying things in court that they would be had up for for a libel suit or you know, slander if they said it anywhere else. For example, you know, saying that destroying somebody's character by saying that they're a bimbo and if they hadn't married a politician, they would have no prominence whatsoever. And the level of vitriol from this defense team is incredible. And I don't know how they think that they will swing the jury that way unless it must be a case of Harvey's pulled all the stops out because he's got nothing to lose. And what you're hearing from the defense team is pretty similar to Harvey's MO, Harvey's worldview. And I'm sure that they're just taking instructions directly from him to the point that he was apparently laughing loudly at, at one of the characterizations of the witnesses by his defense team. And he thinks this is all jolly good fun. But just going back to one thing, I just checked my emails quickly because I remembered that 2009 thing. And that's the difficulty in the United States. Every state has their own law. And you're quite right, Laura. The 2009 cutoff was for California. And uh, I was assaulted by Harvey in New York and LA. So I got my states confused. You're quite right on that. But going back to what's been going on in the courtroom, the tactics of the defense team, I think, by no accident, are exactly the same tactics that Harvey used in his predation. And I don't think that's strange because, you know, obviously he handpicked these lawyers and they obviously have the same mindset as him. But I also think it might be a deliberate attempt to intimidate the women testifying. And I thought it was very notable that when the defense lawyer was pushing Jen Sibonusa on the stand about, well, exactly how, you know, was he pressuring you? How did he come after you? And she said, he was doing what you're doing to me now, which they then turned around and used against her in the closing arguments. But if they know anything about trauma, and I don't know that they do, but if you really want to activate somebody's nervous system, which I prefer to say rather than trigger, but most people think trigger. If you want to trigger someone's nervous system, a trauma survivor, no better way of doing it than using the same dynamics that happened during the assault, even to the point that Worksman was taking his jacket off at one point. But he was trying to make a point, he said, about how long it was taking Harvey to take his suit off. But there is this man disrobing in front of the witness which is exactly what happened during her attack. And if it's not deliberate, it's certainly really crass. I have no doubt that it's deliberate. And I think that with trauma, I think that lawyers look to exploit that. And I think that that is exactly what the problem is with the criminal justice system, when it's not trauma-informed and you don't get best evidence from people. You know, really the court is there to get best evidence to find truth in what happened. And um, we should all want to get best evidence rather than wanting to activate someone's trauma. So I think the mirroring, and I, I was repulsed by it. I did tweet about it. I think that that was actually intentional. 
that is so distasteful in in every way, shape or form, the mirroring of the abuser. But that's why it is secondary victimisation, isn't it, in the system, that when you report, most oftentimes victims report secondary victimisation, that they're re-traumatised and professionals play a role in that and the big bucks are, is in defence. You know, and I don't think it's any accident either that majority of the time he has women speaking out for him, that he chose Lisa Bloom, that his PR person, all the things that are being said, it's women doing his bidding. It's Donna Rattuno at the New York trial. That's all intentional. It's as intentional as him using his walker with the tennis balls at the bottom of it. I thought it would be a wheelchair, but he came out with that walker and he hired those six foot seven goons to escort him into, into the courthouse so that he looks smaller. Power and control just continues within those systems and it's men that can exploit that. And I do think patriarchy does play a part. 25 years ago, I wouldn't have ever said that, by the way. I would have just thought it's not really... Uh, something worthy of a conversation. But actually, all the systems are created by men for men. And that's why I've been trying to change laws with women's experiences, lived experiences at the centre of it, because oftentimes our voices are not heard. That's why the coercive control law is important. I don't think that it's any accident that his defence team had those narratives and challenged and questioned the survivors in that way. And they're still surviving it, aren't they? I mean, the trial is traumatic. And I have no doubt that he, he, Harvey Weinstein, took great pleasure in watching them having to describe things that are incredibly private and uncomfortable and traumatic as events in their lives. And of course, we know the forced memory BS narrative always comes out that people misremember and that it's a transactional thing, and you absolutely do not misremember those key acts. I do believe in Basil van der Kolk's work that the body keeps the score, certain things that you do not forget. But activating someone's trauma response, I do think, is part of the problem. I'm writing notes because you bring up so many good points. I'm trying to keep track so I can answer you one for one. I'm so glad of your work on coercive control because... There were a couple of Weinstein survivors who were feeling a great deal of shame about the fact that they went back. And for those of us who never had any further contact, it's cleaner somehow. But for those victims, they didn't even feel that they could talk publicly about it because they were so frightened that they would be blamed and stigmatized. And when I was able to explain coercive control to them, it was such a huge relief. And they realized exactly what the dynamic had been in their relationship with Weinstein. Using women, yes, that was a deliberate strategy because what we're seeing now is worksmen psychologically abusing women. And it is a calculated risk that they're running, that they're going to turn off the jury members who are predominantly male, I have to say. But the the reason I think that he hired Donna Rotunno is because it looks better if it's a man trying to browbeat a female witness. It, it looks terrible because, again, very obviously you're recreating the dynamics of the abuse. And so I think they thought that by using a woman that 
she could go harder. In fact, Donna Rutherford has said that. That's why she's hired by her male clients, because they can go harder. Women can go harder. But again, I mentioned the level of vitriol, the, the insult that have been flying from the defense team. But again, it's a strategy. And one of the women in the trial was briefed by her lawyer. She was telling me, you know, that this was what they went in expecting because they want to get a reaction. They want to have the witness go to pieces. They want them to get so into survival brain, so activated that then they can't speak clearly. They will sound incoherent. They will sound hysterical. And I think that's the deliberate tactic on the defense team's part is what they want. In, ter in terms of enjoying the terror, Harvey gets off on terror. He could have had any woman he wanted. And I'm sure that there were plenty of women who would have slept with him for advancement, but he didn't want that. And I, I mean, let's face it, he was filthy rich. He could afford as many sex workers as he liked, but he didn't, no, he didn't want that. He absolutely loves to dominate and to bully. And it's all about the fear. It's all about the terror, which is why this isn't about sex. This isn't about poor old Harvey, look at him, uh, you know, just got a bit naughty. There he is. Uh, what, what would you expect? Ugly looking guy left alone in the candy store. It's not that at all. It's not about him getting his regular quota of sex. It's about terrorizing people. It's about his own insecurities. It's about him wanting to get one over the kind of waspy people that he grew up around who seemed to him to be, to have it all. And he didn't have that, he didn't fit that mold. And this is obviously theories according to Lou Gobble, but but it was very revealing, I think, in Jen von Neusen's testimony when apparently Harvey had said to her after attacking her, after raping her, huh, what it would be like for you to bring me home to meet your dad? In other words, there is this uh, woman from an upper middle class family, very waspy, and he was reveling. He was reveling that he was getting won over someone he believed to be in a social class above him. Let's talk makeup for a moment. What's your daily makeup routine? Are you an out of the door with a messy bun, a mascara vibe? Or are you coiffed to the max? Or maybe you're somewhere in between, like me. Thrive Cosmetics beauty products are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free. Made with clean, skin-loving ingredients, high-performance and trademark formulas, and uncompromising standards. Thrive Cosmetics' Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchase, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are emerging from homelessness. It's a beauty brand and a philosophy that goes beyond skin deep by empowering women. Did you know the first product they launched were false eyelashes, which was motivated by the fact that cancer patients lose their eyelashes? How amazing is that? I love their new sheer strength lip plumping peptide gloss. It gives you a visibly fuller-looking, luscious lips without fillers or uncomfortable stinging sensations. 
It's also ultra hydrating and there are 10 shades to choose from which enhance your natural lips, six shines and four shimmers. Support and empower women and treat yourself or a loved one. Thrive Cosmetics is a luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crime analyst. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crime analyst for 20% off your first order. I do agree. I do agree that this is about power and control and about domination. And I think that that really is what's at the heart of what motivates Harvey Weinstein. And we know that in meetings generally of how people characterised him, but he would pick out certain women and yes, he would target them. And I do believe that it's about him being able to, to dominate them in every way. So the whole narrative that's put out when he was first exposed, but also other men like him that, well, he's a sex addict. I don't buy into that at all. I think that that is just an excuse for his offending behaviour. And if we get to the heart of it, what's motivating it, and that is very important to understand with sexual offending, that it's not about the sex per se, it is about power and control, then we start to really understand what's going on, particularly when you have women. And this is what always is so obvious to me, Lou, but it's not obvious to other people, but women describing the same thing. Women who've never met each other describing exactly the same situation, i.e. they go to meet him as we all go to meetings. We all want further advancement, right? We all want to be mentored. We all want to meet the people who are the change makers in our industries. There's nothing wrong with that. But somehow these women are being seen as overly ambitious fortune and fame seekers. Well, why shouldn't they be? Why shouldn't they be ambitious and wanting to be successful like most men want to be? But the fact that it's exploited when they go there, they don't have access to knowledge and safety. What they're told is that, oh, go and meet him in his suite. And then they go up there, everybody else disappears, and then it's one-on-one. Oh, and by the way, then he goes into the bathroom, changes into a robe. Then he's masturbating. None of this is consensual. None of this is what the script is of what women should ever expect going to a meeting. But somehow all of this is being normalised in a courtroom, that this is just transactional sex. It, It really just, for me, beggars belief. They all describe the same thing. But more so, they describe his genitalia. And because of the specifics of his deformity and his genitalia, actually in the Los Angeles trial, much was made of it. They're all describing the same thing. Well, how would they know if what they're saying didn't happen? So again, for me, these serial predators who just get away with it just by saying that it didn't happen and the women are liars. And how many women does it take You know, with Cosby at 60 plus, how many women does it take for us to believe that what they're saying is true? And that unfortunately does fall into the bigger narrative that women are liars and a man says something and it should just be taken as true. But for me, that does go back to Adam and Eve. Eve committed the sin. Helen of Troy, she started the war. Pandora, she opened the box. Every ill that's happened, a woman has been at the centre of it, 
But the thing is, Lou, who writes the stories about women? It's men. And we're still getting men writing these stories. Even in a courtroom in LA, his legal team are rewriting the narrative. And I just hope the prosecution have done enough for there to be no doubt in the jury's mind as we get to day six of deliberations, which always makes me nervous because you never know which way it's going to go. But how many women does it take? That's what I find so disheartening about these cases, and in particular about Weinstein, at a time when we've just had the movie She Said come out, which is about the investigation of how much it took. It's just incredible, isn't it, that it takes so much and so many women for it to be believed that Harvey Weinstein and other serial predators are in fact serial predators who exploit women. I actually had it said to me that we did a disservice that Harvey Weinstein and a number of survivors who came forward did a disservice to people who don't have hundreds of other victims behind them when they want to report and the sense that uh, it's only believable if there are multiples of witnesses. And t- talking about the narrative that the defense team are trying to create, uh, they dismissively said it all comes down to it's my word. And Paul Thompson for prosecution pointed out that actually that is grounds for conviction. If the jury believe the word of the witness, that's enough. So not only are they rewriting whole gender dynamics, but they're trying to rewrite the law on that one. But the other thing is that they've often, the jury, when they did jury selection, they were being asked, what do you think of the phrase, believe all women? Who said that? Nobody ever said that. We didn't say believe all women. We just said believe survivors. And we don't mean, you know, across the board without any kind of due diligence. But given the opposite, which is you're never believed, you know, like just create a space in your mind to consider the fact that this person might be telling the truth. And then that gave rise to, you know, Catherine Deneuve and everyone saying, oh, this is horrible. Me too means that we can't flirt anymore. When anyone says that, I have to go back to Is that what you think Harvey was doing in those rooms when he physically blocked the exit, when he pinned someone to the bed, when he grabbed them and pushed them up against the mirror and masturbated behind them? Is that what you think that was, flirtation? Because you and I have a very different definition of flirtation, if that's the case. But always this attempt to minimize, to ridicule, and you know, again, from the blame and shame that I myself have felt, because we're talking about these women and this happened, well, it happened to me. And I was one of the people that went up to a hotel suite. And I find myself getting defensive because certainly in those days, in, in the 90s, it was perfectly normal for somebody who was coming from out of town to book a suite at the Beverly Hills Hotel or wherever, Peninsula or wherever they were. And you have you had a sitting room and a bedroom and you held meetings in the sitting room. So I didn't think it was at all strange that I was being asked to have a meeting with someone from out of town who was in a hotel suite. But in terms of what can a woman expect, 
sometimes that narrative gets to me like, what the hell was I doing? Why the hell did I go up there? How could, how could I be so bloody stupid? And then I remember the number of people in LA at that time who helped me, who mentored me, who gave me contacts, who gave me advice, and not one of them tried to assault me. Not one of them. So again, going back to what is, what is the expectation for a woman going into a meeting? And can we really blame someone for doing that? But again, we're losing sight of the person who's to blame is the perpetrator. It wouldn't matter if I walked into that room naked. That still doesn't give someone the right to assault me. That's still a crime to assault me. Yes, you raised some excellent points. And I think the the first point of you saying about giving testimony, that is your evidence. Your word about something happening in a court of law counts. That is evidence. People think that it's all about direct physical evidence and that if you have no physical evidence, therefore you can't prove that the crime happened. And that is absolutely not the case. We know that circumstantial evidence and your word of what you're saying is enough. So yes, that's another misconception that is exploited multiple times. One of the points that you raised about multiple victims, what I will say is through my work of profiling serial perpetrators, and I've given the clue away by saying that, is that most are serial. And the irony is, as you know, Lou, we all know many victims and survivors. Can we name the rapists that we socialise with? No one can name them because most oftentimes they're not outed. They haven't been reported. And if they are, nothing's done. So I think the rush to defend and to look at the victim's behaviour, that's still where we go to rather than thinking about, well, hang on, why do we count victims of rape? Why don't we count the perpetrators? How many are there? Why aren't we arresting and convicting them? Well, it's for all the reasons that are, that are playing out. And I think that, you know, you talk about your own experience. That's what most women look at what they did and what, how did they do that and why did they do that? Because we're always forced to look at our own behaviour first and take responsibility for things. And as you said, you went to many meetings and you weren't sexually assaulted. And anyone in Hollywood and in this town knows that oftentimes you do meet at hotels. That's where the meetings take place. So there was nothing odd about that. There was nothing that stood out. What was odd about it was the fact that he exploited that power imbalance. And he forced his power. He exploited women in a place where they've gone to meet him, where they should expect safety. It's quite simple, actually, isn't it? Your right to safety, that women don't naturally have that. That's what he, he took away and many others do exploit. So this whole, it was a transaction and the rules have changed and Harvey Weinstein acting confused that somehow the rules have changed. No, the rules have never changed. No woman signs up to be raped going to a business meeting and rape is rape. Just the language, you know, that keeps being rolled out and trotted out by his PR person and by his legal team. You know, rape is rape. It's a crime. There's been no rule change. Totally agree with you. And talking about false conceptions, you talked about the false memory BS. But unfortunately, I think people think that that's actually really a thing. That because these false memory so-called experts 
like Elizabeth Loftus in the last trial, and they tried to get Deborah Davis in on this one, they think that it's a thing and that it's competing psychological theories. The truth is that if you look at the paper that Davis and Loftus wrote, it starts with the scenario of a student who wakes up in someone's bed and she was drunk the night before and she realizes she's been assaulted by somebody she had been dating a while back and they've gotten back together at this party and then in the morning she's confused about what happened. So this whole false memory, that whole paper was in that scenario, which is so wildly different to what was happening with the titan of Hollywood meeting, you know, wannabe actresses, as in wannabe, we don't have the power yet, or in my case, wannabe production people. It's a completely different scenario. And then the work that Elizabeth Loftus did, what everyone keeps saying is she did memory tests in a laboratory with students. And the only thing that was on the line was whether they would be able to remember the seven objects or not. There was no terror, there was no trauma involved in the experiments that she conducted. And the fact that these so-called experts get paid huge amounts of money to come and appear, oh, that's interesting, only at these very um, wealthy and famous perpetrators' trials, what does that tell you? But even the fact that we talk about false memory like it's a thing worries me. And me too. And it worries me that Elizabeth Loftus has never practised as a therapist. She's never treated a traumatised patient, not once, not ever. And the irony is that when she was questioned at the Ghislaine Maxwell trial, when the prosecution did a very good job of actually discrediting her, and I hadn't seen that before in the way that, that this team did that, but they said, so really you don't know anything about childhood sexual abuse, do you? asked the prosecutor. And after a pause, Elizabeth Loftus said, I do know something about this subject because I was abused when I was six. Recalling the moment later, she wrote, the memory flew out at me, out of the blackness of the past, hitting me with full force. Because that's what happens with the trauma brain. It's remarkable. That's beautiful. Please send me that reference. That is so ironic. I will do, because that is what happened. And that's how she was debunked, because she was making things up from experiments that she did and certain things that she was citing new theories at the Ghislaine Maxwell trial, which the prosecutors did a very good job at debunking her. And of course, she's being called to so many different cases to testify, um, so many high-profile cases, Michael Jackson's case, she was called, obviously, in Ghislaine Maxwell's case, but she's been sort of the go-to expert. And so debunking that through the sciences, and Bill Cosby she was called at, as well as Weinstein's, O.J. Simpson. So, so many cases where she's been booked for the defence. Actually, in 149 out of the 150 cases, she's been called for the defence. Why is that? Guarantee you something, that she's never met any of the victims. She's never sat down and talked to them. She's never listened to their so-called false memories. So when you're studying trauma... She's making this pronouncement. I mean, not only has she not ever worked with a trauma survivor as a therapist or in any other capacity, but she hasn't actually met the people that she's making pronouncements 
upon. So, I mean, nice work if you can get it. Well, it's big bucks, isn't it? But regular memory is totally different from trauma memory. So if you're going to peddle yourself as an expert on trauma and you've never worked with a survivor of trauma and you're a survivor yourself and yet you still don't even understand your own experience, I mean, my goodness, what a own goal. I was just going to say, it reminded me of, I lost a very important friendship after coming forward. And this woman was furious with me. And I remember her saying, well, we've all been in those situations, you know, where it's just easier to have sex with a man um, than to try and get away. And I'm thinking, oh, wow, she can't accept what I'm saying because she can't characterize what happened to her as assault. And the fact that Elizabeth Loftus was sexually abused herself as a child at the age of six. I mean, I'm not a therapist, but it kind of gives you a clue maybe why she does what she does. But go on, you had another question. Well, and that she probably needs a good trauma-informed therapist, doesn't she? I would think so, yes. So oftentimes... Certainly not talking through objects in a laboratory. No. But, I, you know, that's a very astute observation because oftentimes people's blockages to be able to understand or accept somebody else's experiences because of their own past experience that they've pushed down and it's unresolved trauma. And internalised oppression when we talk about the women who are coming to the defence of Harvey and other perpetrators. It's very sad that they've experienced this internalised oppression that would allow them to do that. And internalised misogyny because it is interesting that women do come to the defence. Just this morning, actually, I posted about the LA trial and about the fact that really what it boils down to is his serial predatory behaviour and also his, and I described what Jennifer Siebel Newsom said and other women, his fish-like penis and deformed genitals. And a female reacted to that and said, how dare I? say that it has anything to do with his genitals. Lots of men have deformed or average genitals. Don't even go there. And I replied, I'm not talking about all men. I'm talking about Harvey Weinstein and his power dynamic and what he did. But it's interesting, this rush to defend or sometimes ignore. And I call them the enablers and the apologists. And that's what also ensures that predatory men get away with it. And that's what we saw with Harvey Weinstein and many other people, the ecosystem, the people around that allow it to happen, and for lots of different reasons. But that meant that Harvey Weinstein did say things like he was untouchable. And I think he genuinely believed that he was untouchable and said in New York, I'm the sheriff of this shit-ass town. He, he wasn't messing about. He thought that he was the kingmaker that enables the behaviour. Do you want to say something about that in terms of the role that that enabling plays when, when women speak out? I also want to say something, if the subject has not already been too exhaustively, about Harvey's genitals. I mean, I don't know that he became a predator because of deformity. What I had read is that he had some kind of uh, disease. I think it was in the year 2000. He had fernia gangrene. Okay, so, so I'm from 1991. My story of assault is from 1991. And he did not have deformed genitals at the time. So I don't think that that's 
part of the motivation for his history of predation. Just a point there. But the ecosystem, you wanted to talk about the ecosystem? Of course, saying the word Harvey Weinstein's genitals has put everything out of my head for the moment. Um, as I was treated to a first person viewing, but uh, that you didn't agree to and you didn't want. That I certainly did not agree to and did not want. But I can tell you, maybe this is part that we don't include. He certainly wasn't an, a striking example of manhood. Put it that way. <laughs> so maybe there was some inferiority complex around that, but. Well, I do see that with a lot of rapists and particularly serial perpetrators and serial killers, you know, and why I talk about genitalia is because oftentimes when serial perpetrators and serial killers are operating, they get given these grandiose monikers and names, which only make them seem more powerful and bigger. And I would rather that they were described as the small dick killer, you know, something that takes away the power the, the moniker also plays into, particularly when a lot of the men are about power and control. That's what's motivating their behaviour. So we shouldn't be giving them more power and we should talk about the reality. You know, Epstein had a, a small egg-like penis. That's how it was described by a lot of the girls and the women. Well, that's important when you're thinking about comparative case analysis and similar fact analysis for when you're producing reports for court as an analyst like me. Right. So why would a 15 year old have seen Epstein's penis? Why would any woman going to a business meeting with Harvey Weinstein see his penis and know what it's like? They're important details. And like I said, the media always give these grandiose monikers, which I think are hugely problematic. So, you know, women don't like to talk about the detail. We don't tend to put it all out there and that kind of shame that goes with it. But the LA trial did make quite a big deal around his genitalia for that reason of how did the women know? How did they describe him in the same way? And I do think that power and control, when there's an insecurity, when there's a feeling of less than, what I see in terms of offending behaviour, that trying to utterly dominate a woman that they feel that they can't attain, that does play into it. And the comment that... Weinstein said after he'd raped Jennifer Siebel Newsom was intentional. That wasn't a throwaway comment. It wasn't an unconscious utterance. That was deliberate and intentional. That talks to who he is. That talks to his character, doesn't it? Well, if you remember, he was also saying he wanted uh, the victim to say what a big cock he had, <laughs> his words. If it weren't so dangerous and horrific, it would be kind of laughable. Yeah, but the difference is, is, as you know, it's so traumatic when those things happen to us, but most oftentimes women will try and rationalise it afterwards, you know, try and downplay it, compartmentalise it in order to move through it. And I, I still remember Bruce Castor saying with Bill Cosby, well, the fact that the women reported and it was delayed reporting means it's most likely not credible. The fact that the women stayed in contact with him afterwards means that it's most likely not credible. Well, in this case and many other cases, women do stay in contact with. That power imbalance is still at play. That doesn't mean to say it's not credible. In fact, I would, hearing that there was a continuation and trying to manage as best you can that situation because of the power that he held, that tells me a lot about that power imbalance. 
he did hold power in Hollywood. He leveraged whether you'd get a book deal, whether you'd get an audition, whether you'd get a part in a movie, and he could end your career as quickly as he could make it happen. We know that through Rose McGowan, who was brave enough to come forward at all cost. So again, I think the tropes that people have in their heads that the defence lawyers play off and what the media put in the narrative, it all counts negatively against women. And that's why these conversations are so important to correct the narrative, to not allow that faux narrative to be given credibility, because it's just simply not true when you've analysed, and I've worked with thousands of rape victims, mostly at the times when they're still victims. They're not survivors yet. They're still going through it. But ideally, we want people to go from victim to survivor to thriver. And you can do great things in your life. It doesn't mean you stay in victimhood. I know a lot of people who've done incredible things with their lives and have moved into thriver mode and post-traumatic growth can happen. It's not an easy journey, but it can happen for people. Okay, I'm jumping back in here to wrap this episode. I think there's a lot that we discuss that should give you pause for thought. And I really hope it's been a useful conversation, particularly as there hasn't been much focus on the LA trial. And I think it's important to call out the reprehensible defence lawyer's behaviour. I mean, calling Jennifer a bimbo and defining her through her husband, which is totally sexist and deplorable. Women are not just an appendage of the men that we're with. Jennifer is an impressive and accomplished woman who's self-made. The sexism and misogyny and double standards are off the charts and I won't stop calling it out. Join us for part two. Until then, be curious, ask questions and always trust your instincts. Here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to Crime Analyst or on the website www.crime-analyst.com. It really helps others find me and also helps with the ratings. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Rowbottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrude.